0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 16th of February 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination. As we work our way through this crisis, we also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. For this episode, we're featuring the life and remarkable achievements of Dr. Cecilia payne kapochkin who lived for 80 years from the start of the 20th century and gave the world a legacy of astronomical breakthroughs that forever changed the way that we understand stars and what they're made of. And a spoiler alert, is warranted here. You'll be hearing about a continuing problem we have in scientific communities where women are not respected and begrudged their very existence in these communities and institutions. Begin. Cecilia Payne, the eldest of three children, was born on May 10, 1900, in Wendover, a small rural market town in England, to parents with family and occupational connections to the British intelligentsia. Her father, Edward Payne, was a talented musician, an Oxford fellow, barrister and judge, and had her playing piano scales from the age of two, and she developed perfect pitch. However. Her dad drowned in a canal when she was four. Her mother was Emma Payne, nay, Peertz, a skilled artist who came from an academically accomplished German family. Emma was a rather stern woman who raised her three children alone and made sure her children were well educated. Cecilia's brother grew up to become an archaeologist and her sister became an architect. At age six, Cecilia began attending a small girl's school across the street from her home in Wendover. It was run by Miss Elizabeth Edwards who told her classes that women were the stronger sex. Cecilia learnt to read and became an avid reader. There were frequent exercises in mental arithmetic. Miss Edwards required her girls to learn lengthy poems by heart. And Cecilia said this helped her later scientific work because it developed her memory to a very high level. At age eight, with an interest in botany and insects, Cecilia decided to become a scientist. By the time she left this small school, Cecilia had learnt basic Latin and could speak French and German. She had studied geometry and could do algebra up to the level of quadratic equations, and had been taught how to use a chemical balance. At home, she became a skilled pianist. It had all been wonderful, and then it came crashing down. At age 12, Cecilia moved reluctantly with her mother and siblings to London. Previously accustomed to the freedom of living with plenty of space in nearby fields and hills, She hated the big smoky city. In London for the next four years, she attended St Mary's College, but found it inferior to her little school in Wendover. She felt there were far too many church services, leaving less time for other subjects. There was no science for a year. German was not taught, and her favourite subject, mathematics, was a whole year behind her. The school believed there was a conflict between science and religion and preferred religion cecilia compensated by working through the only two scientific books in her home a botany text in french and german which she translated into english and isaac newton's masterpiece principia cecilia studied calculus and coordinate geometry on her own and just before her 17th birthday Her school told her it could do no more for her and asked her to leave. She left and enrolled for her senior high school years at St Paul's Girls School in London and it was everything she could have hoped for. Here, she was positively encouraged to love science and was taught music by the famous composer Gustav Holtz the first man she'd said more than just a few words to since her father's death over a decade earlier. She played in the school's orchestra, and Holtz taught her to conduct. He urged Cecilia to become a musician, but her heart was set on becoming a scientist. After matriculating from St Paul's as a 19-year-old, her ambition was to study science at the University of Cambridge. But with no money for this, she needed to win a full scholarship. And fortunately, she achieved this formidable objective, winning the only scholarship generous enough to cover all her costs, and enrolled at Newman College in Cambridge, where she was allowed the unusual combination of botany, physics and chemistry. And although she entered Newman College with the intention of reading botany as her major, Cecilia soon dropped it, but retained her interest in taxonomy. She flourished in physics, and two years later, she obtained an honours grade through her studies in the famous Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge, where she was inspired by Ernest Rutherford, who had developed the nuclear model of atoms and was the new director of the lab. Also working in this lab at a time, were J.J. Thomson, who had discovered the electron, and Niels Bohr was a noted visitor to the lab who developed the quantum model of energy levels for electrons in an atom. In 1919, with the war just over, Cecilia launched herself vigorously into her studies in an exciting environment where there was a renewed interest in wider searches for knowledge and new fields of human endeavour in art music, in science and engineering, and in the application of electricity and of the internal combustion engine to both industrial processes and everyday life, including the beginnings of commercial aviation. Nevertheless, there were serious problems she had to deal with on a daily basis. Cecilia's insatiable thirst for knowledge did not sit well with the Cambridge boys. During physics lectures at the University of Cambridge, she, like all women, had to sit at a front, forced to parade past male students who were stomping in time with her steps. Women were not allowed to sit next to men, so she had the whole front row to herself and was derided and mocked. And while being allowed to study and pass all courses and earning top grades as Cecilia did, women were forbidden by university regulations to be awarded a degree. In some ways, nothing has changed much. Today I watched a Zoom call where a male academic scornfully and nastily admonished a highly accomplished female researcher for not kowtowing to his mighty credentials. Astonishing. Now, Back in this environment in Cambridge, there came a serendipitous turning point for our young Cecilia Payne. When one of the only four ticket holders from Newman College had to pull out, Cecilia received the ticket and attended at a Trinity College, Cambridge, a repeat of the world-shaking Royal Society lecture by Sir Arthur Eddington. He was the Plumian Professor of Astronomy and Director of Cambridge Observatory, and he had just announced in November 1919 the successful results of his expeditions to observe the total eclipse of the Sun the previous May. These two expeditions were to the West African island of Principe and the other to the Brazilian town of Sobral, and the aim of the expedition was to measure the gravitational deflection of sunlight from the Hyades constellation passing near the sun during the eclipse. The exact value of this deflection had previously been predicted by Albert Einstein in his 1911 paper and was one of the tests Eddington proposed for Einstein's 1915 theory of general relativity. The deflections were exactly as predicted and widespread newspaper coverage of Eddington's results led to a worldwide fame for Einstein and his theories. Interestingly, Einstein wasn't too fussed about the results by Eddington for he had already decided he was right about how the universe worked. LOL. Cecilia was so totally enthralled with Eddington's lecture that she raced back to her rooms that night and wrote out virtually word for word what she had heard. I know I got it right, she said, because he later published his lecture. She had verified her copy as being almost perfectly correct against his printed version. Such was her changed perception of the world that she did not sleep for three nights. Oh, to have an experience and an exceptional memory like that. From that point on, thanks to Eddington's lecture, Cecilia was welded to physics and astronomy, and Eddington became her mentor, who gave her use of the observatory library. She always said that Eddington was the greatest man I have been privileged to know. Her undergraduate studies at Cambridge, England, continued and she worked with the same enthusiasm through 1920 and 1921 and had the help of a full scholarship for a final year. In 1922, she was introduced to an American visitor, Harlow Shapley, the new director of the Harvard College Observatory, who she found to be the most enthusiastic and encouraging about her obvious quest for new astronomical knowledge, which was quite a contrast to her general Cambridge experience, where women were not encouraged or supported to apply to postgrad opportunities or study grants or research assistant positions. Now, just a little side note from nineteen twenty one onwards as a director of the Harvard College Observatory for thirty years. Shapley was quite an influential astronomer in his own right. He had used severed variable stars to estimate the size of a Milky Way galaxy for the first time and plotted the sun's position within one of its spiral arms by using parallax observations and measurements. Shapley went on to be a citizen hero in other ways too. In the 1940s, he famously put the S for science in... UNESCO. Then in 1946, Shapley stood up to the notorious House Un-American Activities Commission, the HUAC, and accused them of using Gestapo tactics and argued for the abolition of the HUAC. In 1953, Shapley proposed his liquid water belt theory, now known as the concept of a habitable zone Most importantly for this episode, he hired Cecilia Payne to work at the Harvard College Observatory. Now back to Cecilia in 1923, and Payne's first paper is published in the Monthly Notices. Eddington proposes her admittance into the Royal Astronomical Society, and gives her a favourable letter of introduction to Shapley, who she had already met, and it's Bye-bye Cambridge, England, and hello Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Cecilia would set sail across the Atlantic on a new life voyage to study astronomy in America. So once again, she had been urged on by Eddington, who had told her that there was no insuperable difficulty in new making a career in astronomy. And on her arrival at Harvard University, Director Shapley found her a modest stipend to see her through the first two years at Harvard. Now, when Cecilia arrived at the American city of Cambridge in September 1923, she found it exhilarating. This is what she said in a later interview. Coming to Harvard was intoxicating It was partly the climate I had never been in a climate like that before. The Massachusetts climate in a fall, well, I found it physically intoxicating. I had never felt like that before. Cambridge in England has an awful climate. Whenever you go to Cambridge, you, or at least I, used to resign myself to feeling like a vegetable and aching from head to foot all the time I was there because it is so Damp and so cold. Now, at Harvard, there was no defined graduate astronomy program, but there was physics. The chairman of the Department of Physics was Theodore Lyman, who initially refused to accept a woman candidate. But by signing her application and forwarding it to the secretary of Radcliffe College, the Harvard Astronomy Department was created de facto by Shapley. A relevant side note here is that the Harvard College Observatory had a history of hiring women assistants, a.k.a. human computers, to do what was seen as the routine work of populating the seminal Henry Draper catalogue of positions, magnitudes and spectral types of stars. And some of these, such as Annie Jump Cannon, and Henrietta Swan-Leavitt had become internationally known for their work in astronomy. In episodes later this year, Astrophys will be looking closely at Annie Jump Cannon and Henrietta Swan-Leavitt because they were so much more than the human computers they were employed as. They took the observations and data they were entering into the Draper catalogue understood them, saw previously unseen relationships and had indelible impacts on astrophysics and the science of the stars that still reverberate today. An irrelevant side note is that, like me, Annie Jump Cannon and Henrietta Swan Leavitt were both deaf. Back to Cecilia again at Harvard. She began work under the guidance of Annie Jump Cannon, working on stellar spectra and winning class prizes for assignments. She had always been a standout student and she thrived in this new environment, though there were still many significant barriers like the existence of many men-only meetings where women were barred from attending. Twelve months later, in 1924, And Payne is well into her PhD studies and hers would soon be the first doctorate to be awarded by the Harvard College Observatory. And in June 1924, she successfully took the preliminary PhD general examination set by Dr. Shepley. Onwards and upwards. Shepley gave her access to the library, where the Harvard collection of several hundred thousand glass photographs of the night sky, taken over a period of 40 years, were available for Cecilia to examine. Many of these images stretched starlight into strips or spectra, marked by naturally occurring lines that revealed the constituent elements which Cecilia wanted to study in light of her new knowledge of astrophysics and applying her understanding and application of Saha's equation of ionization of the Phrenop alliance, those dark absorption lines in the spectrum of a star, caused by selective absorption of a star's radiation at specific wavelengths by the various elements existing as gases in its atmosphere, thus revealing their exact chemical makeup there was no stopping Cecilia. A modern-day COVID analogy would be to say that Cecilia was doing genomic sequencing of stellar populations. Up to this point, no one had thought to examine all the spectra to take a census of the atoms. Doing so required Cecilia to use that new field of quantum physics to identify Dozens of element signatures in thousands of spectra. A task to which Payne was uniquely suited. The work was gruelling and tedious. She once went without sleep for 72 hours, struggling to understand what the stars were telling her. But she harnessed her keen observation skills, sharp mathematical mind and rigorous physics training. After roughly two years of nearly unbroken focus, she overturned one of the prevailing thoughts of a day, that stars were chemically similar to Earth. Instead, she found that hydrogen appeared to be a million times as abundant as expected, and helium a thousand times so. Earth, it seemed to her, was not the template for the universe. When Cecilia Payne first began her study of stellar spectra, astronomers all believed that the relative abundance of elements in the atmospheres of the sun and the stars had to be similar to that of the Earth's crust, which was known at a time to be approximately forty-five percent oxygen by weight, silicon twenty-eight percent, aluminium eight percent, iron five percent, calcium four percent, sodium four percent, and so on. This was soon proven to be wrong, for, as with every other challenge in her life, pain would not stop. Then, in 1925, her breakthrough. The output from her keen observations and meticulous calculations was that Cecilia produced an amazing PhD thesis, which she published as a monograph. Harvard Observatory monograph number one entitled Stellar Atmospheres, a contribution to the observational study of high temperature in the reversing layers of stars. Her thesis was later nominated by the late Otto Struve and others as the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy. Otto Struve was, by the way, one of the most distinguished and prolific astronomers of the mid-20th century, with more than 900 journal articles and books to his name. He served as director of Yerkes, MacDonald, Lushna and the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, and was the person who hired Subramayan Chandrasekhar, who went on to win an explosive Nobel Prize. So praise for Cecilia's PhD from Dr. Struff was no small thing. For those wanting to read her actual thesis, you can find it in the Harvard archives at tinyearl.com forward slash Cecilia Payne, all one word, all lowercase. In her thesis, she establishes the abundances of the chemical elements observable in stars and proves that the huge variety of spectral types of stars resulted from temperature differences rather than differences in abundances of various elements. One key implication from her thesis research she published was astonishing, that stars consisted of an overwhelming abundance of hydrogen and helium. Payne's results showed that for myriad stars she had so assiduously analysed, the abundance ratios were 74% hydrogen, 24% helium, and all the remaining elements accounted for only 2%. This was not like the composition of the Earth at all. Today, we know that 91% of the atoms in the Sun are hydrogen and 8.87% are helium And all the other atoms, of other elements, make up only 0.13%. However, and here's the rub. In her thesis on page 186, she was urged by noted Harvard astronomer Henry Norris Russell, who, along with Shapley and Eddington, was another influential proponent, Of similar Earth Sun Star elemental abundance theory to discount her hydrogen helium results as spurious. But they weren't spurious at all. They were as accurate as every other data point in her research. Russell finally acknowledged that she was correct four years later, after deriving the same result himself. In his paper, although he credited Miss Payne with determining that stars had a different chemical composition from Earth and were composed primarily of hydrogen and helium, and verified that Cecilia had demonstrated for the first time the chemical homogeneity of the universe, but he was the one who was credited with the discovery. Paving the way for the discoveries by Rosalind Franklin, Vera Rubin, and many other women in STEM to be bypassed. That's a hashtag you could look up on Twitter. You should look up hashtag women in STEM. So, following the 1925 publication of her still remarkable thesis, Dr. Cecilia Payne was awarded her PhD at Radcliffe, Harvard's college for women. Remember, at that time, Harvard was only for men and Harvard itself did not grant doctoral degrees to women. On completing her doctorate after considering other opportunities, she accepted the offer to stay on at Harvard as a technical assistant to Shapley and developed an interest in researching variable stars, and in 1930 she published the first of several acclaimed books, The Stars of High Luminosity. Now. In 1933, Europe was on edge. She was advised not to go there. But Payne visited European observatories, including the Leningrad Observatory, and saw the wretched conditions for Puklova astronomers and continued on to visit Germany, where conditions were also very tense. And she met a young Russian astronomer, Sergei Gabochkin. Despite hardships and persecution in the Soviet Union because of his political views, Gabochkin had achieved success as an astronomer and had fled Russia. However, in Germany, he now faced Nazi persecution because he was a Russian. He asked Cecilia to help him get to America. She was moved by his story and after returning home, she went to Washington and worked hard to get him a visa as a stateless person. Success. He came out, and later, in 1934, they married and she became Cecilia Payne Gapochkin. He obtained a position at Harvard, and from then onwards, they successfully collaborated on studies of variable stars. So, with thoroughly disparate backgrounds and different mother tongues, they formed an astronomical partnership which lasted for four decades. And they had a family of three children, reckoned possibly unfairly by some visitors to Harvard in the 1950s as among the worst-behaved family they had experienced. But there was no doubt the old Harvard Observatory buildings were a fine play area for active children. Their children Catherine and Peter became astronomers themselves and Edward became a neurosurgeon. In 1938, Cecilia Payne-Kapochkin was awarded a lectureship in astronomy at Harvard and continued with her variable star research with Sergei which involved an ambitious systematic investigation of 250,000 observations of variable stars up to 10th magnitude and published her second book, this time with Sergei, Variable Stars. Cecilia continued her research and astronomy lectures at Harvard throughout the war years and in 1954, again with Sergei, published her third book, variable stars and galactic structure. Now, prior to this time, advancement to professor was denied to women at Harvard, so she had spent many years in lesser, low-paid duties. But finally, in 1956, Dr. Cecilia Payne-Kobochkin achieved two Harvard firsts. She became the first female professor and the first woman become a department chair. Over the next few years she put forward empirical patterns that helped define the exact structure of our galaxy and the paths of stellar evolution. In 1957 she produced the galactic novae. In the early 1960s she and Sergei turned their attention to the two Magellanic clouds and made more than two million visual estimates of the Cepheid variable stars in these two immense cauldrons of developing stars. She officially retired in 1966, but continued with her research. Her scientific output was prodigious, with 351 papers published in her life, including five during 1979, her final year of life, and nine books authored or co-authored with Sergei Kapochkin. In 1979, she wrote her autobiography, The Dyer's Hand, that was later posthumously collected in Cecilia Payne Kapochkin, an autobiography and other recollections in 1984. In this autobiography, Payne tells that While at school back at St. Mary's, she created an experiment on the efficacy of prayer by dividing her exams into two random groups, praying for success only in one group and the other, not praying, being the control group. She achieved the higher marks in the control group. Later on, she became quite agnostic. She also wrote in that final year of life, Young people, especially young women, often ask me for advice. Here it is, for what it's worth. Do not undertake a scientific career in quest for fame or money. There are easier and better ways to reach them. Undertake it only if nothing else will satisfy you, for nothing else is probably what you will receive. Your reward will be the widening of the horizon as you climb. And if you achieve that reward, you will ask no other. Vale Cecilia Helena Payne Kapochkin, who died in Cambridge, Massachusetts. On December 7, 1979, she was a smoker and died in her sleep with lung cancer. After her death, Other scientists would go on to remember her as the most eminent woman astronomer of all time. During a time when science was largely a men's club, she had figured out the chemical makeup of the stars and her work is also credited with paving the way for us to develop our understanding of stellar evolution. The final word in this episode should go to Dr. Pan Gabochkin herself. In 1977, in the Astronomical Journal, volume 82, page 665, Cecilia wrote, The reward of the young scientist is the emotional thrill of being the first person in the history of the world to see something or to understand something. Nothing can compare with that experience. The reward of the old scientist is a sense of having seen a vague sketch grow into a masterly landscape. The end. The full transcript of this episode is available at astrophys.com and we'll see you in two weeks when Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave will give us our March sky guide and his fabulous astronomical tangent. For this episode, I've drawn on Cecilia's thesis, Stellar Atmospheres, published by Harvard University Press, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 1925. Also, Donovan Moore's book, What Are Stars Made Of? The Life of Cecilia payne Kapotchkin. Other resources I've used here include an interview transcript with Cecilia and her obituary, both by Owen Gingerich. The transcript is published in the American Institute of Physics and the obit is in the Quarterly Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society, volume 23, page 450, 1982. Another great resource used is a wonderful article on Cecilia by Dr. Douglas Stewart at FamousScientists.org. And remember, Astrofears is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandau at SpaceAustralia.com. And another great astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website.